this is Tom Bailey, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's Ryan Sickler. Yeah, I mean, stand-up is, you're absolutely right. It's not for everyone. And just because you're funny doesn't mean you can get up and entertain an audience. Some people are fantastic at Twitter. I'm not. Always fun to talk to somebody new. We're getting a lot of new comedians on. A lot uh, more comedians coming to the towns and the papers I write for. So we're going to get to hear uh, from people we haven't heard from before. And Ryan Sickler is one of them. And it was a great conversation. We talked about sports and comedy and all things like that. Uh, we have a song of the week coming up. It's a special song of the week coming up from uh, a musician we lost uh, two weeks ago. And we have a dumb bit. It's kind of an encore presentation. I'll explain on the other side. So this week's dumb bit is from 2016. It's from a month before the presidential election, and it's Donald Trump talking about how he'd handle Iran. And of course, Iran is in the news, amongst other things. And uh, of course, the administration is figuring out how to deal with that. So I'm just going to play this. This was uh, how uh, Donald Trump said he would handle the Iranians and the nuclear deal a month before the election in 2016. So have fun. Everyone's wringing their hands about the media fascination with Donald Trump, and uh, we're going to be part of the problem right now, even though we're not really the media per se. Uh, we're going to talk about Donald Trump. So Donald Trump was on with Anderson Cooper about a week and a half ago by the time you're hearing this, and he's talking about uh, negotiation. He can make deals. He can. This is his big thing. Even though he's a crazy racist bigot, he can make deals. He'll deal with the, uh, the opposition and, and make good deals. And uh, he starts talking about the Iran nuclear deal, and uh, I want, he's a little misinformed, one, and then listen how he, he's a great negotiator when he can make up the entire situation. Now, when he starts off okay, I don't disagree with, with uh, what, what he says at the beginning, because uh, in the negotiations, uh, you know, he's, well, here, here's what he says to start off. I would have never started negotiating that deal unless they let our prisoners go first. And I actually think that's a valid point because uh, and I think the White House would probably say, well, you know, there, there's other countries involved in the negotiations. There's, there's a window closing at this time. But I think that's a pretty good point to make. I don't disagree with Trump on that. And then it all falls apart. I would have gone in. I would have said, fellas, got to let our prisoners go. They would have said no. I would have walked. I would have doubled up the sanctions within 24 hours. They would have let the prisoners go. Okay, you do realize, Mr. Trump, we're not the only country imposing sanctions. It's a group effort, one. Although it would be nice if our allies went along and said, you know, let the Westerners go. But uh, secondly, somebody probably thought of that. Uh, Go on. Then I would have gone in. Now I would have gone a second bite. I would have said, listen, we're a busted country. We have no money. We owe 19 trillion dollars because I want to take the lump. My father always said, take the lumps out. He used to say, son, take the lumps out. Okay? Take, what does that mean? Now, that means make- now, here's where I think Trump is laboring under a misapprehension. This $150 billion number gets thrown around a lot that he's going to talk about in a second. And what uh, the conservatives seem to imply is that we gave Iran $150 billion as part of this deal. Uh, that is not the case. Here's Undersecretary of State Wendy Sherman, who was Undersecretary of State uh, through October of last year, explaining what that $150 billion actually is. So let me break that down for everybody. Iran has assets that are frozen in banks around the world, not in any U.S. banks, uh, but in banks in Japan, in the United Arab Emirates, in India, and a variety of other places, South Korea. Those are assets that were frozen because of the sanctions that have been in place. 
So it's Iran's money that had been frozen in those accounts. So it's money they have in Western banks, not even U.S. banks actually, but other Western countries' banks that have been frozen because they refuse to comply with the uh, nuclear deal that the uh, West is trying to put together. Okay, so anyway, here's Trump uh, going on with this $150 billion thing. Because normally I go and say, we're not giving you the $150 billion. So instead I'd say, fellas, we owe $19 trillion. We're a country that has no money. Oh, yeah, and Iran will buy that. <laughs> the United States of America, the largest economy on the planet. We don't have any money. Oh, sure. They'll say, okay, yeah, okay, Mr. Trump, we believe that. And also, again, the $150 billion, we're not giving them $150 billion. We'd not only, we don't have the $150 billion, he's right about that, because it's not in any of our banks. It's in the banks of other countries, and it is, in fact, Iran's money that we are blocking them from using until they sign the nuclear deal that we want them to sign. But he goes right on with this. We can't give you the 150. They'll say, but we want it. I say, we can't give it. We don't have it. We don't have it. That's called taking the lumps out as opposed to, okay. They will go crazy. It'll break up. Two days later, they'll call back. Let's make a deal. We keep the $150 billion. Yeah, so everything goes Donald Trump's way where he can make up the deal and make up what goes on and makes up how people are going to react to it. Keep in mind, though, this guy is such a great negotiator that he came up with a plan to get himself into the NFL and wound up with a check for $3 instead. And then when that happened, uh, just rewrote history. We expect to be around for many years to come. Team owner Donald Trump talked of a grandiose future. Looking back now, I never thought the league could make it. I thought it was a shot in the dark, which it was. Ryan Sigler is a stand-up comedian originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and he's now headlining comedy clubs all over the country. Here now is our interview with Ryan Sigler. My youngest is at band camp today, so we had a very hectic morning here trying to get her uh, sorted for band camp. So, yeah. So, no, no. Totally. Oh, no, no problem at all, man. I totally understand because um, I was almost late. Um, before we get rolling, I want to ask you can we use this uh, audio on my podcast as well as for the print piece for City Pages? That's great. Yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, um, well, since we've never spoken before, let's t- just take the Marin approach. Where are you from, man? I'm originally from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, okay. You stole my football team. <laughs> what, Cleveland? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, I, I know. I, feel, I tell a whole story on, um, it just came out, of, what, in June, I think it was, last month, Comedy Central, This Is Not Happening, about oh, okay. my team getting taken by yes. Indianapolis, yep. and then us getting your team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of um, Baltimore football fans did have mixed emotions about that because they didn't want a, someone else's team. They wanted just wanted their team back or an expansion team. Exactly. That's exactly. I, I was supposed to be a ball boy that year that they left, too, so that really sucked. Oh, man. That's horrible. Did, did you have uh, – were you still in Baltimore like in the 90s when the Canadian Football League team showed up? Yeah, so in college, I interned uh, for the team, and I went to every game the year they went to the championship. And oh, nice. Lost, and then the next year, I went to every game, and then they actually won it that year. And yeah. A, a guy I went to high school named Mark Orlando, he um, 
he played for them. So got to watch him out on the field, which was pretty cool too. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I um I was a huge Canadian Football League fan growing up because I love football, and I found out. But wait, there's this other league that starts before the NFL, and they play in the summer. That's pretty cool. So uh, yeah, yeah. When, when Baltimore got that team, that was uh, pretty exciting. Um, the only team to ever win, the, only American team to ever win the Great Cup. Correct. That is absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And then um, they became the new incarnation of the Montreal Alouettes when um, when the Browns decided they were going to move. So it all it all comes together. Yeah. So, so were you a funny kid growing up? And people said you should be on a stage someday, or you did you just a big stand up comedy fan and think that's what I want to do? Or how did that all come about when you were a kid? When I was a kid, my dad um, introduced me to Richard Pryor in the movie Bustin' Loose. I had snuck downstairs and uh, heard him watching this movie, and I, I saw kids, and I thought, well, I'm allowed to watch this. <laughs> and then I got caught laughing, and uh, he said, get in here. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be in so much trouble. And he said, sit down and watch this with me. And that was it. Oh, wow. And then he introduced me to Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live, like Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, all that stuff back then. So I started imitating the characters to family and friends, and that's where I started, uh, like, really seeing that, that drug that is laughter where you get people going. And um, then I had a few friends who were like, you should definitely try stand-up. And a friend of mine was dating this girl whose dad owned a, or was managing a club in Baltimore at the time. I was 20. And uh, he agreed to let me perform, and that's where I started just a handful of times when I was 20. I did it like four or five times, I think, and then not again until I was 27. Um, but that's how it all got started. And did you have any other alternate career path at all, or did were you laser-focused on comedy? I was laser-focused on comedy, but also I liked television and film so I, I went when I went to college I studied math com and that's what I graduated with a degree in that so I've been able to to use everything really I've been fortunate enough to write and produce um I'm you know a co-ep on a coming up show on E that I helped sell and and uh, a producer on the comedy jam a series that we sold to comedy central and I'm out with a bunch of other shows right now too so I've been able to to jump on both things. And I'm so glad because today's comedian, there, there are very few people who just do stand up and stand up only. And I think it ended up serving me well in the long run. Yeah, do you reckon you might be one of these guys that just goes back to it and then does like nothing but, cause it kind of seems like Seinfeld kind of gravitated that way. And, uh, Paul risers do, although I guess they're all, they're still doing other things though, but they really kind of, but now they can go play theaters and stuff, which is, which is great for them. Yeah. And also podcasting didn't exist back then. You know, there's yes. a way for comedians to stay relevant and to give their fan base, you know, whatever, you know, an hour, hour and a half of quote unquote new content every week. Um, you know, so I think that's been a really instrumental, not I think it has been instrumental in helping comedians just, you know, gain a bigger audience right from some people right from their living rooms. That's where we started. Yeah, and it's it's also given you know uh, you know people who who may have a notion that they're they're funny, but maybe stand up isn't their bag, like me, <laughs> to um to you know to you know to, to still do produce create something you know to have something that's the, that's out there. I mean, I mean, I've done open mics and stuff, but I realize very quickly that it's um I'm much better uh, behind the microphone and writing than I am standing in front of people telling jokes. You know. 
yeah, I mean, stand-up is, you're absolutely right. It's not for everyone. It's just because you're funny doesn't mean you can get up and entertain an audience for an yes. hour, hour and a half. You yes, know? exactly. Uh, some people are some people are fantastic at Twitter. I'm not. You know, some people are fantastic writers, um, storytellers, structure, you name it, behind the camera, behind the mic. Um, you're And you're right. There's absolutely so many more avenues for funny people than just thinking they have to get up on stage and tell jokes. So when you started doing stand-up kind of like, you know, more seriously, was it in Baltimore or were you, had you moved to uh, an, another town by then? I moved to L.A. when I started taking it really seriously. I just got my feet wet in Baltimore. Okay. And, you know, try, tried it out a little bit. <clears throat> but uh, when I moved to California first, I fell into improv. That's right. I started doing that. And then I um, got into the groundlings, and their waiting lists were almost a year between levels. And that's when I decided, well, I'm not just going to wait a year for this. I'm going to get back on stage and pick back stand up at that point and then just never look back. Yeah, it's funny. We were out in uh, California a couple weeks ago on vacation, and I just happened to drive by the groundlings theater. It was the weirdest thing. It was like, oh, that's there. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, Growlings are great. Second City, UCB, you know, they're all, and again, to your, back to your point, you don't just have to do stand-up. There's yeah. improv for funny people. You know, there's so many different avenues. But that's why I, I started um, with improv out here and then jumped back into stand-up. Yeah, and it also seems too like L.A., I, I reckon you probably went there because there were more things to do. It's, it always seems like New York is the, we always hear that New York is a town. If you want to just do stand-up and focus on stand-up, that's where you go. But if you want to do other stuff, you go to Los Angeles because there's, you know, other other things going on, as it were. Yeah, that and then that thing that we call the winter. I got time <laughs> to live in it. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't mind playing in the snow, but I don't need to be living in two degrees anymore and climbing through my my hatchback because the doors are frozen on the car. Oh man, I hear you. I can't wait to get out of this weather. Um, yeah, although weirdly, when we were there in Southern California, I guess we had the June gloom. It didn't get above like 72, 73 the whole time we were out there. The strangest thing. It is strange. It takes a minute to get hot out here. Like true summer feeling. I really don't feel it till July. You say the June gloom and then, yeah, then you get it, but then it, it runs until, you know, it's a November. When you're when you're when you're ready, like all right, we can cool off now. It's all right, we can cool off. Well, the other thing I didn't realize too, I was talking to Jay Moore about this just the other day when he was on, uh, is that I didn't realize uh, I should have. You know, I know the the trope is always, oh, it's hot in the valley and it's warmer actually in the city and by the ocean. That may, but I didn't realize how different the weather was in all of Southern California between the Inland Empire, where it was over a hundred while we were there, but it was seventy in Orange County. It's just it's almost like a little mini country. The weather's so different. Yeah, I live on the west side where it could be 82 degrees, and then we'll drive over to the valley to the studio, and it'll be 98. Yeah. There's, it's, yeah, the valley side is definitely a jump, a big jump for sure. You don't you don't know how to dress sometimes, you know what I mean? Yep. Keep, keep a jacket with you. <laughs> Carry that hoodie in the car. Yep, Carry there you go. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know a lot of your stuff is, you know, it's it's slice of life, but is that like when people have seen clips of you online, is that a good indication of what your like full set is like when you get to stretch your legs or what? what's a, what's 45 minutes, 50 minutes like with uh, Ryan Sickler? Yeah, it's slice of life, observational, things that have happened to me, storytelling mostly, um, which all shifted with the podcast. If you go and listen to my first album, there's storytelling, but it's certainly not 
where it is now. It's, it's, you know, we, as we sat on these podcasts and started talking, oh, you, you know what? You just reminded me of this one time. And people are like, are you talking about that on stage? No, you need to be talking about that on stage. And I can't tell you a handful of comedians, uh, maybe even more than that, have developed their closing bits. We've seen that story first on our podcast, then go out to TV. I've uh, done that myself, the, the ball boy, uh, the alligator, the, the two that I told them oh, yeah. not happening all came right from the podcast. And then, you know, sitting around telling a story with two or three people was different again than getting interaction. And you have to figure out how to find those beats and, and a way to tell that story in a funny way um, where no one's asking questions or fueling it forward, you know. So it's um set of skills to do it that way but i just i love it i love it and does it take a while to do that to develop that from like just a, a funny story you remember to constructing it in a way like it, you know does there, is there i guess there has to be a structure to it obviously because you know as a stand-up bit it's got to have some pacing it's got to have a climax yeah it's it, for me i'm just speaking for me it certainly yeah. takes a little while and I even go back and listen to my most recent album and I'm like, you know, could have said this, could have said that, you know, it just, for me, it never ends. You're always going to be second guessing it. Um, and, and thinking, you know, damn it, I could have added this here. I could have said this, you know, um, but it, it'll take a little while. Cause as you said, it's got to have a story. Good story's got to have a beginning, a middle and an end. I like a really profound moment up top that you call back at the end. And reconnect, and then you got to find those beats of laughter in between um, to keep that story going. Because, like I said, there's no one answering, asking questions. There's no one, you know, giving any feedback during your story. So you've got to fill all those holes. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, and how do you find a way to do that? Do you just like imagine what the audience might be thinking, or th- they're they're probably going to wonder what happened at this point, or, or do you know that from ha- having told it in a podcast format that you kind of know what people are, are curious about? Yeah, I look. I'll tell you, it's a great question. So the one thing I learned in improv, there are rules. There are actual rules of improv. I wouldn't say there's any real rules of stand up, but there are rules of improv like yes ending. Yes space work, um, but one of the things that, that is so valuable that I, I learned in improv is that in a, you need to get the who, what, when, and where out immediately, okay? So if I'm telling a 10-minute a story, in the first minute, the way I like to tell a story is I like to get out the who, what, when, and the where in that first minute, and then after that, we can go wherever we want to go because we've already established our foundation. We've built our base. And now we can build on that base. Um, so that's, that with improv was, was really uh, important to, to carry over into my form of storytelling for me. Um, so if you watch any story I tell, usually you're getting to who, what, when, and where out pretty quickly. And um, then you can go from there, you know, and build on that. Yeah, that, that's so cool. But I'm learning a lot here because I, uh, I teach comedy writing to young people on Saturdays in the fall and the winter and spring. And uh, we do a unit on stand-up and uh, everything. And this, this, is, this is very handy stuff. Because I usually tell them there's basically two ways you can do it. You can do what we call jokey jokes or you can t- think of something funny that happened to you and try to relate that to people. And uh, yeah, they, 
They uh, usually but seem. There's also the I, I option of combining those two. You oh, know, sure. You can start with a nice story and then drop your jokey jokes in that story, which yes is really good uh, when you find those dead moments where, in a normal conversation, someone might ask a question at that moment. You know. Yeah. Um, so there's the opportunity to drop that joke there that fills the void of that question and also answers that question. So do you still have things happening to you constantly? Or are you remembering funnier things that happened from your youth? Uh, how is stuff like that coming together? Both. Both. Uh, you know, I, I love to be around people. It's so funny because I just watched the Eddie Murphy uh, Comedians in Cars with Seinfeld. And when Seinfeld said, what's your process? And Eddie said, most of it comes from conversations I have with people, reaction, I'll say. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. I'll build on that. And I was like, oh, my God, that is exactly my process. So to hear, and I know everyone has a different one, but to hear one of the greatest of all time say, that's the way I do what I do, made me feel really good about the way I do what I do. Because I couldn't be a recluse. You know, I don't know that I would have material uh that, that I could dig from if I wasn't having conversations with people and talking to people on a daily basis. It's fun. Do you ever like, just as a, a, a comedy fan, I've, I notice I, I do this. Do you start to see situations in that way? Because we went to the movies yesterday. My, I took my daughter. Uh, she made a friend up in a up city north of us up in Dayton and they decided to meet and uh, go see Spider-Man together. And so we went there and uh, at the theater, the, the, the kid mumbled the, where the, what theater it was in because they don't put the name of the movie in the actual theater at these multiplexes anymore. He just mumbled the number three and I'm like, is that the third door including the bathroom, sir? Is that the third? I wandered into four different movies trying to find them because I went to the restroom. <laughs> I thought, you know what? This could be some... And I, I told my daughter after she goes, you sound like John Mulaney telling the story. And I'm like, you know what? If I was talented, this probably could be some kind of a bit. But do you... <laughs> But do you do that, like, when you're in situations? I know some people have said this. Do you, like, start – does it start building in your head immediately, or do you later on think, oh, that was something funny that happened? I can't even believe that you're asking this question and the example you gave because it literally happened yesterday. Oh, so nice. The, oh, God, it really did. So took the family out yesterday, my daughter, my stepson – his little sister from his dad. We all modern family it together. We went to saw Lion King. <laughs> oh, there you go. And my stepson's about to be 16 in two weeks, so he's too cool for school right now. You know, we're oh, yeah. annoying. He doesn't want to sit near us, all this. So he's being a typical teenager. He sits down on the end of all of our group. And I get up to go get a drink, and as I look, this the theater's kind of empty at this point. Yeah. This kid, this, this weird kid, walks in, and he sits, of all the seats, he sits right next to my stepson, and I start laughing like, that's what you get. You don't <laughs> want to sit near mom and dad? You're going to sit near the weird kid. Well, this kid starts picking his nose. He's on his phone the whole time. Now the theater's filled up. My stepson can't move, and I am over there just absolutely pissing my pants. With his mom laughing, like, look at him. Look at him. He, he was so annoyed. He was stuck. Oh, I couldn't breathe. I loved every second of it. And I saw it and caught it right away when it happened and then died laughing about it. That's exactly what you get. You want to be a punk to your parents? The universe <laughs> sets you right. There you go. Uh, yeah. When the family does, or even friends for that matter, turn up and and your stories, do they like it? Are they a little uh, prickly about it, or are they, do they, they, they like the exposure? They like. Well, 
some of them worry about it, but when they hear it, they usually like it. I haven't had anybody be upset that I've used their name um, in anything. Uh, my mom wasn't stoked about me telling the truth about the way we grew up, but hey, uh, <laughs> truth, truth is the truth. So yep. you got to eat that sandwich. You yep. know what I'm saying? Yep. Uh, so is there anything, I know you've got your fingers in a lot of pies, is there something that you you haven't done yet that you would really like to tackle uh, as a vehicle for your comedy? I'd love to get an actual special as opposed to albums. Um, and then also, I'd love at some point in my life, I'd love to be published. I'd like to write, write oh, a nice. book about my upbringing, my childhood, and my life. I don't know how many people would want to read that, but I'd like to do that. Well, just just from the bits and pieces I've heard from on stage, it sounds pretty. It could sounds pretty interesting. Um, yeah. So, well, cool, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, this will be in print uh, and online in City Pages the week you're there in Minneapolis, and then the the podcast episode will drop uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm trying to stack a couple here because my other my day job is going to require me to work a couple weekends coming up. So, um, but to that end, I'm going to send uh, Justin. Uh, is, is that's your publicist or your manager? Um, yeah, my manager. Yeah, I'm going to send him a link. Uh, I work for. Uh, I don't know if you know Josh Sneed. He's a stand-up comedian. Uh, he has a t-shirt company here in town that I work for, and we have a sister site. And uh, one of them is it's called Old School Shirts, and it has old shirts from all over the country. And we have a Baltimore page, and we have the proposed Baltimore Bombers logo. We have a Baltimore Stallions oh. t-shirt. So I, I will send that to you. And uh, I wonder. I bought a Baltimore Stallion shirt recently, and I wonder if I got it from you guys. Oh. I didn't see many of them out there, man. I saw. Do you guys also do uh, the Baltimore Stars? The USFL yes. team. Yeah, yeah. That's I us. I wonder if that you got. Is it a? Is your is your uh, Baltimore Stallion shirt like a royal blue? I think it is. The star shirt is red because a guy that runs a. Um, a website about defunct teams. I uh, he's an affiliate of ours. He advertises our our site, and he said he got our shirt because it was red and not white. Because all the shirts you see out there are white. So that, yeah, red with the gold. Yeah, right? yeah, yep. Well, I'll send you the link anyway, and I'll send you a code for free shipping. Yeah, I gotta think I might have uh, bought my stallion. Yeah, please. I, I'm always about getting Baltimore shirts. <laughs> I would. I wear them all over the place. Cool, man. That. Sounds good. And then hopefully we'll see you down here in Cincinnati sometime uh, as well. I love it again. Thank you for your time. Thank I'm you. Sorry this about a, being late. Oh no no, this is a great yeah. chat. I loved it. Thanks, man. All right, man. All right, Take bye-bye. care. Thank you. You, you too. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks again to Ryan Sickler for being on the show. You can catch Ryan at the House of Comedy in Minneapolis August 1st through the 3rd. And then he does a lot of uh, shows out on the West Coast because he's dabbling in other things. So he goes like to the Ice House and the Comedy Store and places like that. For all your Ryan Sickler needs, I'm sorry, I don't have my glasses here, so it's a little bit difficult. It Just go to ryansickler.com, just like it's spelled, just like it sounds. Our song of the week this week is from Johnny Clegg. We lost Johnny Clegg uh, two weeks ago. If you don't know much about Johnny Clegg, he is a South African musician. He was born in Britain, and then he was raised in South Africa, and he was one of the first musicians to have an integrated uh, pop rock band. Uh, The original one was called Jaluka, and then they broke up, and he formed Savuka, and uh, that's where I came into the mix. Uh, He started uh, making records with Savuka in the late 80s, although he'd been making records since the mid-70s. And an interesting story, he is the person that actually put the bug into Paul Simon's ear to come to Africa and maybe use African influences in pop and rock music. 
And uh, people think that Johnny Clay got popular because of uh, you know Paul Simon's Graceland album, which in a way is kind of true, but it was Johnny Clegg that actually told Paul Simon when he was touring in South Africa, and he said, you know, yeah, you should you know try uh, using some of these influences in your music, and, and of course Paul Simon eventually did do that. So anyway, uh, I guess my favorite Johnny Clegg song, and it's hard to pick them, his biggest album is probably Cruel, Crazy, Beautiful World. You may have heard the song Dela was in the Fern Gully soundtrack, amongst other things. Uh, it's been used, I think, in commercials and stuff, too. I think someone is using it uh, right now in a commercial somewhere, I think I've seen. But uh, the track I'm going to pick is from the album before that, called African Shadow Man, and the song is called Take My Heart Away. I think it's a pretty good embodiment of uh, the Johnny Clegg sound. Uh, his son is still uh, a musician, uh, quite a little different, a little more Western than uh, Johnny. My buddy from high school, Andy, actually saw them uh, together. Uh, his son opened for the father, and he said the son was okay, but Johnny is just still amazing. And if you look him up on YouTube, some concert footage, it's, it's a pretty cool experience. It's like it's like what Paul Simon probably should have done, as great as Graceland is. It's, you know, I think Johnny Clegg growing up with the, those influences, you know, uh, you know, really, I think had the had a leg up, uh, you know, artistically, I guess. And one other point I would make is, uh, I guess I was reading in the obituary of Johnny Clegg that he got a lot of grief for still playing uh, around South Africa, even during apartheid. But my argument would be, he's from South Africa. I think it's his mom was actually South African, and his dad was British, or vice versa. And so, and he grew up in South Africa, and he had an integrated band. So, I mean. I don't see the problem with that, and I think I would argue that in a way that helped, you know, was one little, you know, kernel of what helped finally bring apartheid down. So I don't know why people were giving Johnny Clegg grief about that. Uh, so anyway, we're going to get to the song of the week. This is uh, from the 19, I believe it's 89 album, African Shadow Man. This is Johnny Clegg, Take My Heart Away, song of the week on PF's Take Recorder. Johnny Clegg, rock and peace, so long, and thanks for listening. Take my heart away.